First John chapter 3, where we left off our study. First John chapter 3, we'll be picking up at verse 11. You can put your finger there. I'll eventually get there. Now we'll ask the Lord for his blessing. Father God, we always like to pause before we reflect now on your holy word. We recognize that it is supernatural. It's living, as, as the Bible says about the Bible, that it's no ordinary work of men, but it's God-breathed. And so, breath of God, find your place in our hearts and open the eyes of our understanding and show us Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, once I became aware of this news story last year, uh, whenever I hear the biblical exhortation to lay down our lives for our brother or our sister, I can't help but think of this real tearjerker. Um, for those who haven't heard me reference the incident, a mom and her two sons, Jordan 13, Blake 10, were driving on their way home and were caught in a surprise flash flood on Monday. I'm reading from the article itself, in southern Queensland, Australia, the car engine stalled, and the mom called for emergency assistance and was told to stay put for safety reasons. The family was forced to climb on the top of the roof of the car as the raging flood continued to rise. Now, once help arrived, Jordan, and this always gets me, uh, it's very moving, uh, Jordan, the older brother, uh, with the rescuers uh, arriving, uh, pleaded with the men to save his younger brother first. Oh, gosh, it gets me. So the rescuer secured Jordan and his mom to a line, but agreed to take the younger brother first. And as Blake was being lifted to safety, the other line snapped, and only Blake was saved. The heroic courage of the 13-year-old Jordan was heightened when uh, everybody found out that he was terrified of water since he didn't know how to swim. But still, he insisted that his younger brother be taken first, and it cost him and his mom uh, their lives. Well, while the biblical command to demonstrate this kind of love usually does not cost us our physical lives, it does cost us something, and that's the point of this um, God-inspired apostle telling us and writing to us this morning in this text, laying aside our own comforts, our own conveniences and agendas for the more pressing needs of somebody else is a Christian distinction of love that sets us apart from the way the world operates and indeed the way the world loves. And of course, this is to be practiced as a way of life. Now, for context, if you're just joining us, as a couple couples are, uh, John is writing here to first century Christians trying to cope with false teachers who've come up with a false version 
of Christianity. They claimed this transcendent spiritual knowledge uh, that they had obtained uh, really lifted them to a new level of spirituality that um, didn't uh, require personal uh, holiness and it didn't uh, leave you restricted to the biblical Jesus Christ. And so the hard part, of course, was that the false teachers were uh, the same people that they knew. They had left the church. They were leaders. And also, um, they were using the same terms that we use as born-again Christians, walking in the light, knowing God, uh, being born again, going to heaven. They even used the name Jesus Christ. And so they were really confused, the first century Christians to whom John is writing. Uh, so he gets very simple. I mean, first John is like cut and dried, black and white, very, very simple. That's why we always recommend that anybody new to the faith always start with first John. So the, John's um, driving uh, effort here is three tests, three tests that we can know uh, and see that the, what three tests that he gives to assure believers, look, you're saved. You got the real deal. And at the same time, the three tests expose the fakers and shows that they're outside the realm of Christian orthodoxy, or I could say Christian truths, all right? And so those three tests, really quick, the first one is the truth test. Um, Jesus said, many will come in my, way, in my name and claim to be the way. False ways will be a dime a dozen. So you got to make sure you have the biblical Jesus, the God-man who came to earth to die in our place, to bear sins on our cross, and that he's the only way to get to heaven. you got to have the right God. That's the first test. The second test, of course, is the moral test. Jesus just said, and John elaborates, if you love the Lord, you keep his commands. Jesus said that. Plain and simple. You say you know me, I'm the epitome of all goodness, then there ought to be goodness in your life. You should have moral transformation, the moral test. And thirdly, which is the test we have now cycled back to again, is the love test, the right heart. Uh, if you claim that the God, the spirit of the God of all compassion and all love beats in your chest, that you know this, this, this God of love. In fact, John is going to say God is love. That this God of love is, is in your life. Then from your life, we ought to be able to see God's kind of love expressed through you. Now, those are the tests that keep coming around all through 1 John over and over again. And now we've already been through these tests, but we're coming back to the love test again. And John is going to repeat himself a little bit and then add another twist as we've seen him do. So we're going to pick up where we left off at verse 11 with the test of love. Now, this is the message you've heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Don't be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. 
we know that we've passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone, anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. And this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This, then, is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Well, we'll pause there for this morning's reflection. It's very simply divided, quite nicely for notes, the test of love, a couple paragraphs. Uh, let's uh, categorize our thoughts around two ideas, what love is not, and then secondly, what biblical love is. So John here is going to start with a striking negative illustration. He's saying, here's a great example of what I'm not talking about. Sometimes it's helpful to see what a thing is not in order to understand a little bit more of what it is. Let me paraphrase the opening thought. Now, this is what we've heard from the beginning. We must love one another. We're not like Cain, who showed his allegiance to the devil by killing his own brother. And what drove him to murder him? He was jealous. Abel was right with God, and he wasn't. Hmm. So, long story short, a lack of brotherly love proves an absence of eternal life. Uh, verse 11 reintroduces this subject, which is new again, but old for us because he's been talking about it. And he says, look, here's the message you've heard from the start. We love one another with God's love. And we've heard that from the beginning. Opening line of any gospel, for God so Love the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The first sentence of, of the gospel presentation is with love. God's great love is the driving force behind the gospel. God's great love is the foundation of Christianity. God's great love is the fulfillment of all God's commands. Can you imagine? There's a lot of commands in the Bible. And Paul through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 13, verse 11, says, you know what? Love is the fulfillment of the entirement of God's law. Love. Not the world's love, but God's love. And we're going to define that love uh, in just a moment. And so we see the importance of love. He says, listen, listen, let's go back to the beginning, the beginning of the whole Christian life, the beginning of the Bible. It's all about God's love. You can achieve the greatest things in this life, but not have love. And then in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, you're nothing. With all of this great achievement, you minus one ingredient, that would be biblical love, and then you're a zero. 
Doesn't matter what you could say. Oh, well, I know every language in the world. I speak the, the, the language of heaven. I speak in tongues, or I have great charismatic gifts, and I have so much faith I can move mountains. And I give all my money to the poor, all of it, and then sacrifice my body to the flames. He says, are you missing biblical love? Then all of that means nothing. And so love is important. So he comes back and he says, listen, you know, you can't fake biblical love. And so one of the tests to see whether you yourself have the spirit of the living God in you and whether they are just faking it is this biblical love because it comes from God and it's all about God and you can't get around it. So apparently these false teachers were low on love. And of course they were. You can't manifest the kind of love the Bible calls us to. There's no way. A human being can't do it. Because the Bible's version of love is against everything human inclination stands for. And so he's going to just say, check out their lives. Because they're not loving in biblical ways. And so he's going to bring up the exhibit A. And he's going to warn us not to be like Cain. So he says, speaking of what you've heard from the beginning. Oh, yeah, the beginning. Oh, it's not just about love in the beginning, was it? There's a choice in the beginning. And in the beginning, we have love. And in the beginning, Genesis chapter 3 and 4, we have Cain. So we have hate as well. And let's talk about Cain a little bit. The very first human being ever to be born. The very first person to be a brother, to have a brother. Cain. He says he was deficient in love. Now, I, my new go-to guy for First John, F.F. Bruce, he says it's not that Cain, by murdering his brother, became a child of the devil, but his connection to the evil one was evidenced and culminated in the murder of Abel. So John's not saying, and always make sure you hear this one, John's not saying, make sure you love so you can make it to heaven. Rather, he's saying, since you're going to heaven, make sure you continue in the hard work of biblical love. Now, Cain, uh, like these false spiritual gurus, hadn't a clue about what God's love was all about. So he says, don't be like Cain. Well, I can hear some silent protests, can't you? Seriously, John, you're writing to born-again Christians. They're telling us, hey, you guys, don't be like Cain. Oh, yeah, every morning I wake up and I, I just think, wouldn't it be awesome to be Cain, you know? Uh, why are you warning us to be something so uh, uh, unattractive and unappealing? It, it's like a no-brainer. Why? It, well... The only reason he would warn us not to be like Cain is that there's a possibility that we could resemble something about that murderer. And he says, watch it, because even though you're in the Lord and you have the Holy Spirit, there are things that led Cain to kill that you deal with on a daily basis. So he cuts right to the chase. He says, and why did Cain kill his brother? He was jealous. 
oh, you mean if I'm jealous and I nurture that envy and resentment and hatred and it grows into anger and then that anger into rage, oh, it's related. And in that sense, as I entertain jealousy and envy and resentment, then I can be like Cain. And he says, exactly. Very good, Pastor Ross. You're catching on. <laughs> and so we don't want to be like Cain. We grimace at the thought. And you remember the story. You can read Genesis, uh, the opening uh, verses of chapter 4, 1 through about 11. You know, the Lord made it clear. Folks, uh, I, I love you. Your parents sinned, brought death and separation. But I'm making a way back. And it will involve the death of another on your behalf since the wages of your sin is death. And so, uh, so until I do that for you, it's going to be foreshadowed in the truth of a lamb offered or a bull or a goat. A, a heartbeat has to stop with your sins named on it. And then if, if you do that by faith, then you can temporarily, things are okay. You're right with me. And so the boys knew that. The throne was there in the garden. And uh, you can picture the scenario. For some reason, Cain said, you know what? I'm a farmer. I work hard. I'll bring a basket of fruits and veggies. I worked really hard for this. And I'll come in and I'll say, can we be friends? With Look what I'm bringing to, to a pay for my debt. And the Lord frowns and scowls and says, no way, I told you what was required. Look at your brother. And the brother steps in. Abel comes in with, you know, an unattractive offering stained with blood. And the Lord says, oh, well, son, Abel, by faith, listen, one day there'll be a lamb that's going to take away and pay for your sins and the sins of the world. Thank you. Way to go, son. You're obedient and in faith. Hebrews chapter 11 says it was Abel's faith and Cain's unbelief that caused the distinction. And so, uh, you know, Cain got the two thumbs down, and the Lord was so patient and reasonable, wasn't he? He says, Cain, I can tell. What's wrong with you? Your face. You're wearing it right there. You're upset. You're mad. You're looking at your brother like you, you know, like you could kill somebody. <laughs> and then the Lord says, Cain, just do the right thing and everything will be cool between us. Just do the right thing. But you better watch out because sin is crouched in your heart like a, like a lioness crouched down ready to leap and take prey. You must master that thing, Cain. And Cain says, you know what? No, I'm not gonna. And he starts to resent his brother. And he has a problem with God. And he's going to take it out this way, like most people do. And so he says, hey, bro, come on out here. I want to talk to you about something in the field right behind that big stack. And he brings him out there, and the Bible uses a word that is very rare to describe how he was killed. I, I'm not going to go into it, but it's to slaughter. And he slaughtered his brother. And then John says, 
um, by the way, could you not be so surprised when the unbelieving world resents you in the same sort of way? And why do they resent you? The same reason Cain resented Abel, because Abel was right with God and Cain wasn't. And so when the world says, oh, you guys, oh, you're the only ones God answers prayer for. Well, he listens to everybody, but did you pray in Jesus' name, his son? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus? No, I don't. And no, I don't have to. There are many ways. God bless us all. Thank you. You're not the only chosen ones. Oh, everybody else is lost and going to hell. And they're mad. You guys are just a little exclusive club, aren't you? Just like Abel. Abel was right with God. That ticked his brother off. We're right with God. Peace on earth is the Christmas message. Uh, to whom his, on, upon whom his favor rests is the last part of that verse. There's no peace to the whole world. It's God loves the whole world, and those who have Jesus Christ will enjoy that love. We didn't make up the rules. And so John says, P.S., it drives them crazy to hear there's only one group of people saved and that you're right with God and that they're not. The root of the world's displeasure with the church is our claim of being right with God while others are not. So be that as it may, John closes out Cain's negative illustration with this. He says, we know that we've passed from death to life. We live in God's love, a love that unbelievers cannot know and do not live in like Cain. Cain lived in death. He never came to life because there was no love in his heart, but only hate. So John here is echoing Paul. John's really saying that, that this person remains in death who hates, who has no love, because love is a sign of a spiritual heartbeat. Now, you remember what Paul the Apostle said about things found in Cain's heart. He said, oh, that, those things are in all people who are not going to heaven's heart. He says in Galatians chapter 5, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious, and hatred, discord, like fighting back and forth, jealousy, fits of rage, self-centered living, dissensions, envy, and the like. Here's the kicker. Listen, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. John's saying the exact same thing in another way. He's saying when you live in those things that obviously you have not passed from death and darkness and unbelief into God's light. Because when you do that, these things are suppressed and repressed and dealt with by the power of God's love and the presence of his Holy Spirit. So he says, God's children are not like Cain. He says, so jealousy, envy, bitterness, resentment, the things that Paul just said lie dormant in the believer's life because we have a sinful nature. He says, those little seeds, watch out. He says, can I help you to avoid those kinds of things by telling you that when they reach fruition, they made Cain who Cain is. 
So watch out. You say, oh, it's just a little bit, a twinge of envy. The Bible is like, you want to be like Cain? Well, I didn't say I was going to kill somebody. I just have a little envy. In the heart, there is no difference. To hate is to despise. To cut off from relationship and murder is simply the fulfillment of that attitude. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said it this way. Every person who hates another has the venom of murder in his veins. He may never actually take the deadly weapon into his hand and destroy life, but if he wishes that his brother or sister were out of the way, if he would be glad if no such person ever existed, that feeling amounts to murder in the eyes of God. And Jesus said uh, such, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, didn't he? He said, uh, you know, you, you've, you guys are like, well, you've heard it said, do not commit murder. But he said, you know what? Do you ever get so mad and you just call somebody an idiot? He says, bingo, watch out, in danger of hell. Because it's the seed. So all, all the Bible is saying is, and, and this is one writer said it, it's kind of harsh, but he said, character qualities of the damned should not be listed among God's holy people. The Bible says, these people who live in a pattern with hate and envy and jealousy and, and, and uh, resentment and they're bitter and unforgiving, that kind of life does not inherit the kingdom of God. So do you want any of it? Even if it's little. Now, a couple weeks ago, I said, you know, a rattlesnake is a rattlesnake. Even the little ones are dangerous. A man comes up to me. He may be here today. He said, Pastor Ross, little rattlesnakes are dangerous. He held up his hand, and his little finger never grew past the age when it was bitten by a baby rattlesnake that he picked up when he was seven years old. He picked up a little baby rattlesnake that had no rattle, and he said it was this big, and it bit his pinky, and the pinky died. Never grew, and he showed it to me. Oh, oh, it's just a little twinge of envy. Oh, just a little gossip. Oh, what did I say? You know, I passed along a rumor. Okay, don't we all? Yeah, don't. Yeah, just a little teeny little thing like that. Oh, you're making a mountain out of a molehill. Read the Bible. Just because we are desensitized and we all have sinful issues in our lives doesn't mean it's okay and that it's not going to turn around and bite you. And now his life will never be the same, nor will yours when you allow a twinge of anything deadly. Allow the twinge and see what I'm talking about. That's what the Bible says. Now, he says, don't be like Cain. It's dangerous to Christian unity. It's dangerous to your Christian testimony. And you know what, folks? Before we move on to the last point, it's dangerous to you. It's the ultimate suicide bomber maneuver. You know? Oh, you're going to blow up all your enemies. Whoops. You too. <laughs> That's what hate does. 
Unfortunately, don't we all realize that? You know, the acid on uh, the acid can destroy the container that holds it as well as the object upon which it is poured. Don't be like Cain. The next time you're envious, the next time you resent somebody, the next time you act in a hateful, mean-spirited, critical little way, you, my friend, and I are like Cain, the murderer. That's what he says. Moving on. <laughs> we have seen now love contrasted with hate. We know what it's not. Now he's going to say, okay, let me just tell you what it is. It's so easy. Let's just look at what the Lord did, and that's biblical love. Let me paraphrase that opening. Now, the Lord Jesus, John writes, shows us exactly what love is all about. He defined it for us when he laid down his life for us, period. So in turn, we follow suit. And we lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Now, here's a good example. Let's say you know a Christian in need, and you have the ability to meet that need and ease their suffering, but you don't care at all about that person. How can God's love be in you? Now, it's important, as I've been saying uh, to define love God's way, because if we define love incorrectly, as the world often does, then everyone passes the test, because everybody says, oh, I'm basically a loving person. Well, can I tell you what the definition of God's love and his requirement of biblical love is? And so we see Jesus' example is the standard. Right? So, uh, long story short, in a nutshell, here it is. Love is living for the highest good of another, no matter the cost to us. Love is living for the highest good of others at a cost to me, personally. Now, the concept of love is perhaps the most twisted and misunderstood uh, and most abused concept of all concepts in the Bible. Now, uh, because especially it's compounded by the fact that English, the word for love in English, as we've said many times, is so limited. Uh, I mean, honestly, we love our iPhone, we love our puppy, we love our house, we love our new baby. Uh, we love the weather. We love orange chicken. And we love Jesus, too. I mean, seriously? <laughs> there better be some differentiating between those loves as there are in other languages. God, in his sovereign wisdom, chose that the gospel be communicated through the language of Greek. The New Testament, that is, in Hebrew, in the Old. The New Testament has the benefit of describing what God really meant by love by the choice of words offered. And there's about a dozen words that you could choose, but there are four basic ones, and you all have heard this many times. Eros, number one, the romantic love, which the world goes gaga and mostly is talking about when they say they love someone. Or storge is a love between family members, 
a love that you feel for your mom or your dad, that kind of love. Then there's the Greek word philia. It means a deep friendship that two people can share, a partnership, a, a brotherly, sisterly, friend kind of love. Those three done. Then there's God's love, agape. Now, God's love is distinct right from the start because all the other kinds of loves in the entire world have to do with emotion, feeling. If I, if I mention any of those three words, you can say, hey, there's a warm fuzzy, there's a buzz, there, there's something I get out of this. There's an attraction. There's just this wonder and awe about it. Not so with God's love. It can have it, but it's totally 100% independent of how you feel or how it makes you feel, whether it's attractive or not. And this is a great definition of it. Biblical love seeks to give without any expectation of receiving back. It's selfless and only concerned about the highest good and best interest of its beloved. It can love the unlovable and unattractive. It can endure being slighted, offended, or rejected, or left out. It loves for the sake of loving. It's the kind of love you can never fall in and out of. You nail it to a cross. It cries out in your defense, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. It's the kind of love that loves for the sake of loving. It's an act of the will, regardless of the state of your emotions, period. It loves for the sake of loving. So when a man tells his girl, oh, I love you, and then pressures her to do something that violates God's commandments, or God commands us to refrain from sexual intimacy unless we're in the confines of marriage. But I love you. No, you don't, because the definition of love is your highest good at my expense, no matter what that is, convenience, cost, or the fact that I got to go take a cold shower until we're married. Sorry, I don't know why I said that. <laughs> I'm, I was in youth pastor mode, suddenly. Love is not also for the sake of relational unity, glossing over accepting philosophies or religions or lifestyles that injure people's souls and ultimately bar them from heaven. So love is not saying, oh, congratulations, I'm so happy for you. You found this new path. Not if you're a Christian, that's not Christian love. But with respect, with gentleness, with kindness, we don't, we don't applaud somebody who's in harm's way. And people say, oh, well, that's not very loving of you. It's the most loving thing in the world. If I know the, the bridge is out eternally, you're on the road. You're going to drive off it eternally. And I'm just applauding because I don't want to endure any conflict. That's not love. That's hate. That's apathy. 
I don't care about you enough to endure the cost of being slandered by you and have an uncomfortable moment here in our relationship. That's what the Bible defines love as. Highest good of the other at the cost to me of something. And Jesus didn't just do it at the cross. I mean, think of what it took for the, for the, for the God who made heaven and earth to take on human form, to decide, you know what? I'm going down there through a human womb. I'm going to reduce myself to one cell. He started as one cell in Mary's womb. The infinite God, the heavens can't fill him. And he says, you know what's important here? It's not what I want to do, it's what they need. They need me to have a human body because their penalty is death. The wages of sin is death. What they owe me is to die. <laughs> so I need a body, a human body, so that I can die for them. Their highest good at my expense. He comes and he puts himself in a body, a human body, laying aside uh, the privilege of being God the Son, not taking advantage of that, as Philippians 2 says. Laying aside his dignity. He's at the table. The Lord of glory is at table the night that he was betrayed. And some reason or another, uh, the servant was busy. The wash basin to wash their dirty feet was empty. And they're all sitting around the table. Well, actually, they're reclining, so their dirty feet are up in everybody's faces. It's just a cultural Jewish no-no. Wash those feet down before you sit at the supper. And so, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do the job that nobody else wants to do. And by doing so, declare myself as kind of you know, insignificant, a person who really is humble. I'm not going to do that. So Jesus says, you know what? I'll do it. Because your highest good at my personal expense. Who wants to get on their hands and feet and wash a bunch of dirty feet? Nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to do whatever biblical love really is. It's against human inclination to want to lay aside my agenda, my desires, my thoughts, and do what's important to you in the moment. And Jesus did that and washed their feet in John 13. He's in the garden. He's praying. He says, Father, is there a way that you can think of to get this done any other way, to take this cup from me, please, Three times I'm going to ask you, is there another way that I, I don't have to bear the sins of, of the world upon me and go to a cross and have them nail me to a piece of wood that I made? Is there a way? I don't want to do it, but I will because love displaces self and what self wants and says, oh, they need this. This is the hour for which I was born. Love says, to heck with what I feel right now. What do you need? And the world needed him to go to that cross. And he said, in love, I lay down my desires. I despise the shame. But when I think of you, 
I have joy in my heart. Nevertheless, not what I want, but what is loving, what you want, Father. And he went ahead and laid down his life on the cross. So here's what John's saying. This is how love is defined. This is how Jesus lived. This is who Jesus is. And you say, that Jesus is in you. May we see that. Not perfectly, but can we get a little uh, observation of this man who lived for the needs of others? So verse 17, paraphrased, he says, uh, let me give you a scenario. You come to your own conclusion. Let me just throw one out. He says, there's someone at church who's down and out, needy. It's been brought to your attention, and you have the ability to meet that need and alleviate their suffering, but you could care less about them. You tell me, how is it possible that that Jesus lives in that kind of heart? So here's what John's saying. If the love of Jesus is missing, quite possibly, then Jesus might be missing too. Well, you might say, you know what? Listen, I am so busy and I've got a life, and I've got schedules and deadlines and all of that. Listen, my friend, the Son of God was a very busy man. <laughs> he had a schedule. He had to be on that cross on the 14th of Nisan. He had to be on Good Friday. He needed to be on the cross, or the entire Bible comes unraveled. You don't have a Bible. You don't have a gospel. He misses that day. Everything falls apart. He's busy. He's got important things. He's on his way in. And there's a beggar crying in need. Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, I know you're the Messiah. Hey, over here. I'm a blind kind of toothless beggar that everybody walks by and doesn't see. And love. Love says, hold the parade. Hold the parade, God the Son. Hold the parade on the way to die for the sins of the world. Stop everything. For who? A prince? A king? A celebrity? No, that homeless guy over there on the corner. Bring him over here. The guy comes over. He says, what are you crying about? What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see. He says, granted, you can see. He's doing a lot of things for other people the last few days of his life. He's not out taking a cruise, enjoying himself, because he knows he's got five days to live. He's running around talking to homeless guys on the corner that everybody's walking by and just ignoring and saying, he makes more money than I do. Sorry. Here's our problem. We claim he lives in us, and if he does, then we need to show the highest love at a cost to us. And I'll tell you what, in closing, anything you do, as I've already mentioned, in biblical love, real biblical love, like love that God says, wow, that's love, costs you every single time. Every single time. 
I mean, somebody interrupts you and says, hey, I need this right now. Could you just do it now? And this the other day while I'm studying this. My wife says, could you just help me with this one outline here? And I said, well, you really don't need it right now, right? Because I'm on my way to the gym. I'm on my way to the gym and I only have two hours. And if I miss it, I don't have the time and I could do this for you on Monday. And the Lord is like, Pastor Ross, look at these words. Aren't they lovely? It's always a cause to say, you know what? We're pressing need. The gym can wait. Let me help my wife. I helped my wife and it was well worth the effort. It just is it's, it fosters blessing. You see, when you help somebody move, who really wants to help anyone move? <laughs> no one in their right mind. All right? Somebody had to move, and it got brought up at a support staff meeting this weekend. Uh, she's moving. She moved this weekend. Last week, we had the meeting, and somebody said, hey, we need a couple guys to help somebody move. Well, when? On Saturday morning, <laughs> or whenever it was, two hands shut up. And I was thinking, that, that's biblical love, to say, you know what? I don't care what I'm doing on Saturday morning, and it's not about the love for the person. It's about the love for God, a response to be saying to God, you saved this wretch. You've given me eternal life. You wiped my sins away. I'm going to live forever and reign and rule in heaven with Christ on a throne. I can help a girl move this weekend, and I want to do that. Everything that we do in love, in Christian love, rubs the natural inclination the wrong way. And that is what agape is all about. Overlooking offenses, forgiving, going the extra mile. You know, they shouldn't have asked you to go the first mile, whatever it was. Could you do this? And, you know, they should have done it. So you end up doing it. And then you say, with a smile and joy in your heart, because you actually want to do it, hey, can I go the second mile for you? The Lord says, when you love the way I'm teaching you how to love, the world will sit up and take note. Wow. All men will know you belong to me when you live this kind of love. He says, could you do me a favor? The pagans... The unbelievers, the atheists, they know how to love. They love each other. You see examples of it. They love people who love them. They buy gifts for people who buy gifts for them. You guys have more than an atheist has. You've got the living God in your heart. Where's the distinction of your love from their love? Where do you rise above the love that's in the world? And he says, when you do that, the world will take notice they just do in the in the smallest little things remember i told you about the security guard at the laundromat uh, who a christian was doing her laundry a college girl and he would watch her and she would clean out all the lint uh trays 
and, and, and tidy up other people's messes. But she always made sure she cleaned up after herself. And he made a comment about that and said, I noticed you're always good about the lint trays and the garbage overflowing. And, and somebody right before you made that big mess and you cleaned it up. It just, what's up with that? Why did you do that? And, and they started talking. She invited him to church. He heard the gospel. He became a Christian. Why? When you get to heaven, you can look him up. And he's going to tell you, you know what did it for me? It was a lint trap. It was, a, I, I just want to go, why would a person act that way? Why do you turn the other cheek? Why do you answer a, a harsh rebuke with a soft response? There's something not right about you in a wonderful way. <laughs> tell me about it. And you know what he closes with here? What I love he says, not only will the world take note that you belong to him, your own heart will recognize it. He says, listen to this. This is how we have peace in his presence when our heart is pointing fingers and accusing us and our broken conscience saying, you're no good. He says, you want to know how we know we're saved? When that kind of supernatural love is in us and working through us, our own hearts go, wow, why did my hand go up so quick to help her move? Why? I mean, that's not like me. Why am I suddenly, as is the case of one man in this congregation, why am I able to forgive from my heart the drunk driver who killed my wife? Because his heart says, you know him. He's working, isn't he? You're in the truth. That's why he's surprised in his own heart. I have pity for her, the drunk driver. That's not human. We want to, the human thing is, I'm sorry, is to take her life or make her suffer, lock her up, throw away the key. My wife, are you kidding me? The mother of my five kids? Because she's out sloshing herself for the third time? And he says, I forgive you from my heart, and I pray for you and your soul. And then his heart goes, wow. I'm a believer. <laughs> That's what John is saying. Because our own sinful heart recognizes the supernatural aspect of the love that's residing and coursing through our soul. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the challenge of your word. We all fall short. <laughs> In showing this kind of love, God, please forgive us and help us when we fall short. We are trying, God. We, we love you and we, and we do love others. We're not very good at it, but we are thankful for your grace and we are walking in the right direction. Enlarge our hearts with this great selfless love that puts the needs of others before our own needs and at the cost of personal convenience. 
We thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.